You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here. Today, I'm very pleased to be talking to Omid Jalili, who I actually interviewed about six or seven years ago as part of the Chortle Book Festival. And I had intended at the time, I'd arranged with Chortle, that I would then release that episode as an episode of ComCom. But in the end, I felt that it was it was too centred on the book and it was more like a kind of promotional uh, interview. So, and, and less like a a kind of let's get into it comcom interview and uh, i've just reminded myself of not just of joe rogan by saying let's get into it i've reminded myself of the incredible tim heidecker spoof of joe rogan which is currently doing the rounds on the internet please look at that there is a two hour long youtube video of it but it loops after about an hour i'm reliably informed it is perfect but my point is before we get into not getting into it um i think that i'm really glad i waited do you remember um, do you remember the angela barnes episode of this podcast some years ago in the last four or five years where we said that i'd actually recorded an episode with her decided not to put it out because she didn't have that much of a body of work upon which to reflect and then we did it when she did and it was great well very similar things with this episode with Omid in that we, right from the get-go, are talking about his feelings uh, about his former existence as a comic. Is that fair? I was, not existence, but his former act, his former material, his his way of being a comic, his way of performing. And it is something that he has really reflected on. And right from the off, we're going to get stuck into that. We're going to talk about the tendency of white middle class reviewers uh, to froth at his otherness uh, and whether he kind of gave them ammunition to do that. Such was his approach to, uh, to his comedy. Um, we're going to find out what advice a young Michael McIntyre rejected that's fascinating and if you're a member of the insiders club we're going to talk rejected isn't quite fair but it's definitely worth listening to the story uh, and there are 20 minutes of extra content available if you are a member of the insiders club including omid on uh, Whoopi goldberg um when he worked with Whoopi, and find out uh, how she inspired him and uh, we also get an amazing true story about his approach to casting directors in the early days of his movie career not to mention what remains of an anecdote that the the connection brutalized the anecdote but i think the good stuff is still there um about his very mold break uh, audition for his key role in the Brendan Fraser The Mummy film. So, all of that and more at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders and I should say, and I'll mention this again Omid Jalili's tour, the Good Times tour is going to be at London's Eventim Apollo in just a few weeks, the 18th of December and then he's touring the UK until November next year. So go to omidnoagenda.com for all your tour dates and tickets. Here, at last 
is Omid Jalili. Tell me, how is the show? Because you're touring at the moment and it's the Good Times tour. Good times at last, post-lockdown, we hope. Um, and you're touring, you've been on tour for a little while and you're keeping going for the whole of the next year. I looked at your dates and you're, you're still going. I think your last date is currently a year and a week from now. Yeah, it's because, you know, I, I um, not only did I do very few gigs, I got pinged and I couldn't do a lot of warm-up gigs. So oh. the first 10 or 15 were like warm-ups and what happens is that you do the show and then managers and, you know, wives come and see the show and are horrified and you have to then completely <laughs> rejig the whole thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, we, I worked out that it's going to take a long time. I'm not like, I actually say it in the show, I'm not like a Netflix, a Netflix comedian who's paid $40 million who can perform all during uh, the pandemic to get ready for a Netflix special. Sure. Uh, it's it's kind of finding it as you go along and the more you do, the better. And, and it's, it's you know, Stuart, one thing we know as comedians, every comedian I've spoken to, we, this is the job that we've all taken for granted. This is the thing that we did it and almost like, oh, you know, uh, I've got a TV show and then you talk as management want you to tour. But then you realise, actually, this is the thing I enjoy the most and this is the thing I want to be doing for the rest of my life. It's not something I'll... I remember Frankie Boyle saying that, you know, comedians should stop doing it at 40. I said, you know, I said, I said Frankie, go screw yourself. You, <laughs> you, you may want to stop, but you're not going to stop us in our 50s. We're just going to keep going till we drop because all the all the best ones do, Don Rickles and all those people, they yeah. they just ca- carried on. So it's, it's kind of... It, it's my way of saying this is the thing I love doing most and this is the thing I, I don't want to stop doing. Is that is that uh, inf- is that opinion informed by the enforced break for eighteen months? Is that did that yes. kind of have an if? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it is no. It's only because I realised how much I missed it, and even Zoom gigs were a joy because I really thought that was it. I thought we weren't going to. I thought that was it for comedy. So I thought if it's, if it's going to be a couple of Zoom gigs a week, then that's how it's got to be. You know, it, it, we are the joy givers. You start realising. Who are we? What do we do? What is our function in society? Are we just mentally ill people who just need the laughter of strangers to validate a broken childhood? Or are we people who actually have something to say and can help shape society? So that's something that I've been reflecting on. I was reflecting a lot on my own act, which you can only do and thinking, you know, have I just been perpetuating Middle Eastern stereotypes? Have I actually had any kind of impact on British society, um, do people appreciate me? Do I appreciate myself? You know, is there any reason for doing this? So all of those things. What? Why did some routines get me cancelled in the nineties? Why did Why did this not get a laugh? What was it? And I think it's it, at that, that period of reflection that was was very important for me. And even now, some things I do in in the new normal where people are used to and are demanding a higher quality of content you have to really think hard about is this is this is this noise pollution is this me just trying to validate myself is this of any good for society i I, i've been far more thoughtful about that now and i and i feel that's a very important part of the the process of being a stand-up because it, it goes hand in hand with you developing as a human being and i remember jerry seinfeld being asked the question can you like someone whose act you don't like? Yeah. And he thought about it and he said, no. And 
when you've got management and you've got people close to you, you know, your partners, wives, children, if they don't like your act, then it means they really can't like you and they're embarrassed of you. So it's it's something I've had to really think about hard and even look back on some of my thoughts. Oh, maybe I'll do a riff on an old routine. Like I can't watch old DVDs. I can't watch them. I thought, oh my God, how did I even let this out? This is just so embarrassing. So it's been a rough time for me because we all try and, you know, reinvent ourselves, but it's been very, very difficult. And I, and I think that most stand-ups I'm speaking to, they're re-evaluating not just the, the the genre, but their place in the genre. So yeah, it's, it's been a great period of reflection. I can tell you now, I mean, the listeners of this podcast will be thinking, here we go, we're right in there. This is, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff, this sort of reflecting on a body of work, I think is really important to me. Um, you, I feel what you're hinting at there is the suggestion that people around you have intimated you know, that they, that they weren't super proud of some of your output. Yes. You weren't super proud of it. And it's interesting looking back in, in preparation for this interview, I watched one of your Apollo clips from a long time ago. There's nine yeah. 11 stuff on it. So a long time ago. And I was struck by two things. One is that I had never really understood before. I'd never really noticed the extent to which your kind of enormous charisma and, and ability to just have, a room of over a thousand people in the palm of your hand from the off. It kind of, it reminded me a little bit and I, I couldn't believe that it reminded me of this. It reminded me of Terry Alderton. It reminded mm. me of the, because I think of you as an observational comic. And then I went, hang on a minute. This is everything in the kitchen sink. This is a joke, a song, a, a dance, uh, something else, an anecdote or something and piled up on top of each other in such a way that they become unstoppable. And it, it struck me, and I wanted to ask you, we'll get into this in kind of the formation of, of work like that, the extent to which it's improvised, the extent to which it's always in the same order, even because I just thought I could imagine watching you at the Bearcat doing that set going blam, 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 blam. And they were in pieces. The other observation I, I had was, as you sort of suggest, that some of that stuff um, was kind of it, you were so charismatic that the material didn't need to be the cleverest or most thought through material. I was a mentally ill person, desperate for laughs and didn't know who I was. Is that your, I mean, is I that, think I that's mean, it. Okay. I've watched myself on live at the Apollo and I, I couldn't watch more than five minutes. I said, that's a mentally ill person who doesn't know who he is. He has no core. He doesn't know who he is. He's just trying to get a little bit of validation. And that was it. And, and, and you grow, you grow through this, whole process and you when you go back and look at things you think what the hell was I doing and when you when you mentioned Terry Alderton it's interesting about 15-20 years ago I remember my wife saying why can't you be more like Terry Alderton he's, <laughs> he's genuinely more entertaining be a bit more like him and apparently his wife had said to him you're crazy can't you be a bit more like Omid and be a bit more like more reflective be more observational <laughs> so yeah it, it, it is a, it, it's an amazing thing when you see yourself early on and I'm very moved and very excited when when live at the Apollo did a uh, a retrospective and you had Jack D saying that he he didn't know me but he really wanted me on not as a not as the diversity but as someone who was mad like mad mad cap crazy and yeah at the beginning as as often happens when new people come along and you see wow that's just crazy and and you become flavor of the month but then because you didn't, I didn't really know stand-up. I, I started off as an actor and I, and I went into it 
because actually my wife told me to get into it. She you should try and doing stand-up. It might, might be a fun thing to do, like get you out of the house kind of thing. And um, I, I just did what I knew and I just watched other comedians. This is a bit boring. Why don't you sing about it? I'm watching them thinking, you know, you often write your own act while you're watching other people. Because, you know, this would be much more entertaining if you sang a bit. Move around a bit, you know. Don't just stand there in, in jeans and a T-shirt. Do something. Dance a bit, you know. <laughs> so I became what was in my mind watching other comedians who I thought, when I look back now, they actually had really good material. And they were really funny comedians. And um, I think in my in my state, I just thought, that let's let's... Let's shake things up a bit, but, but not from any um, g- g- thoughtful place, just as a sure. reactive thing to be more entertained because I was so bored by stand-up. I didn't really like it. I come from an experimental theatre background where, you know, I was doing, you know, stuff in Czechoslovakia where there was, a, you know, an opening scene of a of goldfish on a string with a pin spot coming down, someone at the back playing one note on a cello. Lights come up. General cover, I've got a gun, click, explosive device, explodes the fish, and I shout Lenin at the top of my voice. That's the kind of stuff I was doing, okay. which was visual. So, of course, then trying to do stand-up comedy, it, it was influenced by mad, mid, you know, Eastern European experimental theatre. <laughs> so so I think that was the, the, where I started. But, yeah, yeah. but now when, when, you, be, when you, you get older and you become more conscious – and you start asking, why am I doing this? And and what is it? What is it that's just noise? Because some people, you, you go on there and you see they're just noise and it's pollution. And it's, you know, we, we come from a broken society. So a lot of people doing it are broken. And you see younger comics who are doing nothing but polluting a crowd. They think something's funny, but it's something awful and dark and just really... You, you you watch them and think, my God, are we noble creatures or are we really in the gutter? Are we really that much in the depths that we have to even listen to this? It's not uplifting. It's just depressing. And it's just awful. I saw a clip of a woman in America who was complaining. She stood up and she was on the stage and everyone's saying, sit down. But she was offended. So she felt she had to stand up. And you're seeing this happening around comedy clubs. Odd people get up and they're not just the work brigade. They're just like... I deserve better as a human being. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to be bombarded with this shit. And I think that's the thing. That's what I realize when you go back to loved ones telling you things. My son told me something very interesting. I've got a 22-year-old son who's at York University. And he said, um, he said, Dad, I'll be really honest with you. I think you could be the funniest comedian in the world, but somehow you still suck. And I said, <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. I, I know a comedy blog that had taken on as a, as a reviewer. <laughs> I know. And I said, do you know what? That It made me laugh out loud. I said, you, you could be a comedy reviewer with that. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, you're so fine. But what you don't understand is people want to be uplifted. People want stuff. We don't want smut. We don't want vulgarity. And what happens with it? I, 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 said, I said, I feel like Mozart saying, I... I am a vulgar man, but my work is not vulgar. And he goes, you're the absolute opposite. You are not a vulgar man, but your work is vulgar. And I said, how is it vulgar? And he said, there are a few moments in your show where it's like having a wonderful meal, but there's just a little speck of shit that just, it just, it pollutes the thing. Would you eat that food if you knew there was a speck? I said, well, I mean, 
I clean it off. He goes, yeah, but would you, Stephen, would you still clean it off? Or would you ask for another meal? I said, yeah, you're probably right. So that kind of vigilance is something I'm beginning to take very, very seriously that actually at the very highest level, you have to be vigilant of crap coming in. And I'm not just talking about a weak joke. I'm talking about the kind of vulgarity and the kind of, I suppose, lower nature comedy that we think gets a massive laugh. And it does get big laughs. There's a bit of a shock factor, but it it can ruin the rest of it. And I realise why they're not laughing here and that's more clever stuff. And you think, actually, you've just ruined it with a bit of smut or a bit of vulgarity there that they, they don't appreciate that's the next interesting. bit. So you have to think of the whole thing. And it's not just about getting laughs. And, and you see, Jimmy Carr can say, I love I love the laugh and then people going afterwards because they hate themselves for laughing. Mm. And that's that kind of comedian who does that. But if you are bringing, if, if your if you're raison d'etre is to have a fun show, which is, which is entertaining, educating, elevating, and actually brings joy, you don't realise the damage you're doing to your own act by putting certain things in. I remember, uh, I remember um, Frank Skinner doing, telling me something amazing, that he felt that he was swearing too much. He was using the F word in the same way some people say, you know, a lot. He said, you know, and as you know, he said, stop saying, you know, it's, 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 it's a terrible habit. So he took out all swear words from his show. And then he, and then he realized he missed it about four, maybe four to eight times. He goes, I can't remember, but sometimes about six times I missed saying that, that, that pushing it and I put them back in the next night in those places where I missed it and the laugh was even bigger. So I realized by swearing so much, I was ruining the whole show. I was ruining people's enjoyment of it. So it's that kind of forensic detail. Now, when you're in your fifties, you can think about and think, okay, how, how can I fix it? And at the beginning, when you put a show together, it is like a painting and you're putting stuff on, you know, we like to think that we're all like Picassos and Salvador Dali's every night doing little different. But actually, there are some things which, unless you literally rub it out, it'll affect the whole canvas. Yes. You've got to use Tipex or something. So th- those are the kind of things I'm thinking about. And um, I haven't got there yet. And there's still, I mean, last night it was great. There was a standing ovation. But I was still thinking, well, there was, you know, only a quarter of the people stood up. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> well, that's it. So is that is that instinct then? I, only a quarter of them stood up. Do you need to be wary of that instinct? Because what yes. you're talking about, I guess, is trying to uh, please them whilst not being beholden to pleasing them. Yeah, because that's uh, you, old, don't it? Yeah, you never you never do that. Yeah, it's the please everybody. Literally, I watch myself and I think, oh my god, how much more? Should I just come on with a sign on my head saying, please like me, please validate me? That, that's what I saw. Whereas if you see uh, an older comedian, they don't really care if someone likes you or not. They're, they're talking from their truth. But even then, even then you think, I mean, I remember watching the latest Louis C.K. thing and then there was a great bit he did about having been cancelled and coming back. It was great, really good. And then he did a stuff about having sex with his mother or thinking about having sex with his mother. And I, and I remember just thinking, what, you've just ruined everything. You've just, you've just, you've just put back the shit that you were cancelled for. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't funny. It was just for my taste, I was thinking, you know, what he did before was, you know, some comedians, they push things, they push things and to see just how far they can go. Cause it's like a, there's a whole bunch of comedians who think, how far can we take this? And and there's a there's a merit to that as well. But you think, oh my God, 
That's exactly the kind of mental pollution that, that we don't need. We don't need that thing out in the world to think about. I don't want to say it because it, it just made sure, me think about it. It sure. is awful. So this is Omid. You see what I mean? We got straight in there. That thing his son said to him, you could be the funniest comedian, but you still suck. And I mean, I don't want him to carry that around in his heart because you can't trust your son. (laughs) If having a son has taught me anything, you can't trust your son's opinion. Um, But your son's opinion of you, certainly, uh, because there's, you know, he's got it's got too much skin in the game. You're not you're not able to be uh, to be at all objective there. But so pleased that we got stuck into that. We will keep talking about stand-up as the engine of Omid's creativity. We're going to talk about his experiences at the Edinburgh Fringe, his early experiences that kind of came to define him, or did they? Um, And we will also get into which new material he's most proud of um, and find out how Omid copes with failure. So all of that coming soon. Uh, If you're in the Insiders Club, and if you're not, you can go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Um, But there's loads of great stuff there about Whoopi Goldberg, the mummy and uh, a very very funny letter that he wrote to a casting director at the very beginning of his movie career lots of great stuff there about 20 minutes i think um comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for all of the extras from all the episodes from everything from nish from james acaster fern brady i saw acaster at the weekend and he gave me an incredibly good tip i'll talk to you about that in the post amble actually um and uh, and all of that. Anyway, let's get on with this. Remember that Omid, it's, you go to omidnoagenda.com for tour dates. He's touring until November next year, but he's at the Apollo in London, the, the Eventim Apollo. They've paid the money. They deserve to have their name said on the 18th of December. So omidnoagenda.com. Let's get back to Omid. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Apollo clip that I was looking at, you can't deny, even though even though I think the one I looked at, your name was spelt wrong on someone's upload of it. <laughs> Million and a half views and the comments underneath it. Every single one of them. This is the funniest thing I've ever seen. I love this guy. I love it. I love wow. it. I love is it. that right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I would never suggest anyone look at the comments. I can't guarantee every no. single one of them. I positive. never look at the comments. You know, never look. But they were very, very positive. And right. I suppose... What I'm, what I'm suggesting is like you can't, at the same time as this kind of this new way of looking at comedy and a new forensic way of, of looking at your career and the, wor- and the worth of the things that you're saying, at the same time as that, you can't completely throw that other guy that you used to be under no. the bus because it was powerfully successful. And it built, you built 
not your, you know, obviously you have your movie, your acting career, but you built your comedy career out of it to the stage where you're a household name and you're doing this monster length tour. So it did work. So going into building this tour, what was that feeling like of going like, presumably if you hadn't made any of those decisions, you'd be going into it thinking that new way of looking at your act, you'd be going in thinking anything's game. I'm just going to throw myself out it at it. I'll be the whirlwind. Funny stuff will happen this will be fine. Like, I suppose what I'm getting at is how different was it beginning writing this tour show compared to beginning writing a tour show 15 yeah, years ago? Hugely different because 15, 15 years ago or when I first started about 25 years ago, it was always an after, stand-up was an afterthought. It wasn't something. I mean, I remember I was gigging with people like Simon Pegg who were the same. Simon Pegg, Simon Pegg had a great act. He was genuinely funny guy. And I remember thinking, I remember telling him, he goes, oh, I've given up stand-up. I'm, I'm doing films and things now. And I remember telling him, why, why have you given up? You were so good. He goes, no, I never really, he goes, it was like the two of us, we were doing stuff that was just, it was, it was an afterthought. He goes, you were doing films. I was doing films. It was like an afterthought. And then I thought, yeah, but didn't you ever have an epiphany and think this is actually quite a powerful thing? He went, no, no, I didn't, didn't really think. And I, and fair, fair play because he's gone. You've got to respect that. You, you have to respect, respect that. He found something better for himself. Yeah. He found something better for himself. And the thing is, I, I could have had something better for myself, but um, I gravitated more towards stand-up because it, it really is the purest form of entertainment. And it's the thing I enjoy. The, I started going to see people like seeing Chris Rock, Louis C.K., seeing people and actually being really blown away. Jerry Seinfeld, Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, everyone who came to the Apollo or the O2, I, I went along just to watch and I was blown away by A, how calm and confident they were and B, how it was just about the material. The, the shows that I enjoyed was about the material. So it's now I realise when I'm older and you think, okay, people have bought into me. What can I say now? And I think it really is about the material, working out the wording, even like less words, less words. It was always less words. Get to the punchline quicker. How can I say this in an economic you know, fat trimmed way. And I think that that process where you are the writer and the director and the performer of your own work is is the most exciting thing I could possibly be doing. And then also you realise that does affect other work you do if you want to write for television or a film. That same fat trimming way of writing, even whether it's drama or something, it's 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 the it's the basis for all creative work. So that's why I would never stop doing stand up because it's such an engine of creativity. It's such a, I suppose, a, a way of keeping me alive. And, and you've always got programs going on your head. That's for a TV show. That's for a stand up. So you're always looking at life through a filter where you think, okay, that could be funny or that could be interesting or that could be, or maybe that's not um, a, a closing joke, but that's a bit you can put in the middle and mm. when you crunch up your material. So, so all of that is, um, it's all encapsulated in what I think is, is an amazing genre and, and the basis for, for all entertainment. And, and when you started 25 years ago, the first time, first few times you walked on stage to do stand-up, um, what was the process there to get right inside baseball on it? What was the, were you like, you've got a load of notes, are you writing down notes? Do you walk on and think, I'm just going to talk to them because I've noticed enough stuff that's somewhere parked in my brain? Did you yes. have a set list? Had you written a set list? What kind of act were you in that very first kind of period? Yeah, I think what I did, I wrote down bullet points. That's And I did that naturally, having not seen any comedians I just wrote down bullet bullet points and went on 
and said, just, and I'd always, oh, I forgot that, but it was a big thing. I forgot that. I forgot that. It was always about not forgetting stuff. And, and I really admired Jimmy Carr because he just used to walk on early on with a, just a, a, a big file in front of him and he just yeah, used to read yeah. it. And a clipboard. That was a, yeah. I said, is that part of the, he goes, I just can't remember my jokes. And, I, and, and what happens is he said that I, I tell you, if, if you've got, if he's got them in a, in a list and if, you know, he'll go down the list and that's better for this moment. So he was able to choose and he just, that was the way he worked because I think he was working for an oil company or, or he was a therapist for a while. He just found clipboards really helpful. So he said, why not use it in comedy? And everything, that's the worst thing because you're supposed to be spontaneous. It's supposed to look like it's coming from your brain there yeah. and then. And, and a lot of it, a lot of the times with him, it was because he was one of the best improvisers I saw. Yeah, because he didn't need to use any of his brain trying yes. to remember his act. So actually exactly. there's a certain elegance to that system, you know. He was, I remember seeing him at the uh, comedy store. I said, do you need that thing? Because you're so good with the crowd. You just destroy people. And he went, I, I, he goes, I need it. That's my crutch. That's why exactly what he, right, he, could, right. he could do that. So I used to write it down and look at it and um, practice it in the car. I used to talk to myself in the car. Okay. And go out and, and do it. And I remember... This is the thing, this is the mental illness now, is I remember thinking, unless the audience has stood on their feet and shouting, I can't sleep. And I remember there'd be nights, there'd be a warm round of applause on that. But yeah, I'd be up all night thinking, what did I do wrong? So there was this, such a hunger and need and expectation for immediate adulation. That's wrong. That is completely crazy. So I got into a terrible spiral of putting on a tremendous amount of weight where... I would eat a lot after a show to reward myself mm-hmm. or punish myself. Mm-hmm. And then I just wouldn't go to sleep. And I often um, just used to sit behind. I had those old Amstrad computers and I just used to write, just write my set out and think, what have I done wrong? How can I make this better? But it was, it, it was, it was coming from a very, very, I suppose, anxious space. And I could never really enjoy the, the good gigs either. So that's why it was always a secondary thing because it caused so much stress Mm-hmm. It was only around, it was it was 1999, I think, when I had a bit of a breakthrough at the Edinburgh Festival where I did something called the Iranian Kaylee, which was, I had a musician with him where we just danced and sang, told stories, gags, danced and sang, told stories and did gags. And it was, and everybody, I remember lots of comics coming to that show saying, what a great concept for a show. And everybody, and they said, oh, you could be nominated for the Perrier. And I said, really? I didn't even think, I just want to do a fun show. And that was like a breakthrough and then I went back in 2002 after 9-11 and I was nominated for the Perrier for, for something that was just material. I remember thinking, just, I remember thinking, just go on with a T-shirt and nothing else. Mm. I, th- I think I've been put on a, I've been put on a, a, a headscarf because I didn't even want people to see I was bald or I didn't want them to be distracted. I said, just come on and be as neutral and just talk about what's happened in the last 11 months. And then that was very well received. But that was the first time I really took it very seriously. Because up until then, up until about 2001, up until September 2001, I was I was given a Time Out Comedy Award in January of 2001. Because the, the, the Time Out Comedy Award was voted by the comedy, um, the venue, um, people around the venues. And places like the Bearcat, like Har Bloody Har, all of these people have always said, Amid's always done well. So, so it was the first time. And there was not even a question of he's the first ethnic minority. There was, that's the one thing I never had, which, I, which was really interesting that no one really, because I spoke with quite an English posh accent, no one really 
classed me as the diversity, although at the same time, I never performed with women. And I remember saying, why don't, because I never, I think once I was with Joe Enright, I never met Joe Brand, I never met Mandy Knight, oh. because, because I was seen as the diversity. They always, yeah, they, we've already got one. We've already got a person yeah. who isn't a white man. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Exactly. That's astonishing. It was astonishing. So I, I, I only perform with blokes and I never perform with women. And it kind of dawned on me that I'm a little bit like the diversity here, but I refuse to be that. I, I just want to be seen as a comic. So, so when I got nominated for the Perrier and all that, it was just me being a comic and giving my perspective. But it was slightly from, I see myself like as the kind of bridge between East and West. It was me explaining how things are seen in the East and, you know, and how people can see it in the West. And I think there were a lot of routines in that show called Behind Our Enemy Lines, which, which I think was the first time that opened my eyes that I can be actually quite helpful because this shocking thing had happened Twin Towers had gone down. People have flown planes into buildings, and the whole concept of suicide bombing was was really shocking and new. And I was saying, well, it's not that shocking. If and and it's not that it's not beyond the realms of the way. And I wasn't condoning it, but I can. I said, look, these are the reasons why they think this. Yeah. This is this is how things done. And people found it very very helpful. And even now, I did a show at Cadogan Hall. And the uh, one of the, the 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 front of house manager said, "She goes, do you know? I think it's very good for us to listen to you because we want to learn. As English people, we want to know what to do, Mister Gillily. Please show us." <laughs> I think, "What are you talking about? It's just a comedy show." And they said, "No, but you're saying some interesting things about white privilege, and you're saying some things about microaggressions and all that things that I've mm. experienced." Um, which which is very interesting to me. Um, so so yeah. So to so answer your question, it's it's a it's a more conscious way of of writing comedy, and it's a more conscious way of going out there and being very, I suppose, savvy about what's actually happening in the room. Whereas before, it was just go out there, make them laugh, and if they can, cheer, and you've done your job. Yeah. With with that show, with behind enemy lines, I don't know if you have a, a recording of it anywhere, but would you be able to look back at it more kindly than? your kind of big belly busting Apollo type stuff. Yes. That was the beginning of like, that was saying something meaningful. There are comedians who have kind of conceptual shows at the Edinburgh Festival and then just do their club set when they're schlepping around the country. Did you, what was the relationship between that kind of the award winning or the award nominated kind of sensitive, meaningful stuff that you were doing and the stuff that you were doing presumably at the same time, which was getting a standing ovation at all costs? Yeah, and this this was a very big, um, I suppose, tension within me because I was very upset that I could do a conceptual show post nine eleven in August of twenty two thousand and two and get like the most number of five star reviews that's ever been given by comedy reviewers, and then going back a few years later and just doing a stand up show and getting the most number of two star reviews and thinking now and hang on this is this is not right that you. You only like me if I've got a concept, whereas a Jack D or a Joe Brand can go on and get a four-star review by just doing a stand-up show. Why are you trying to box me into, I I did that before, and now I just want to be a comedian. What is wrong with that? Mm. And that was something I felt was was wrong. And I think that was something that they just had a go at me because I I was the guy who got 10 five-star reviews before, so they... 
they saw me in within a different way. It's like it's his second album, and it was it it maybe it wasn't as 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 interesting and more I suppose culturally relevant as that show in two thousand two was. But that's always been my problem of being. I've always had issues with reviewers because actually someone like me has only been reviewed by white middle-class English blokes who are kind of comedy nerds and they'll love you if you do something that's, you know, really in the moment and amazing and exciting. But if you're doing a show that also gets a standing ovation where you're just being a comic, Mm. that's somehow not enough. And it's somehow I'm 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 betraying my cultural roots. Yes, what, or something. what they'd like is for you to come back year on year talking more about the Iranian. The Persian yeah, I don't want to do that. I, yeah, I, right, I will sure. just want to be a comic, and that that has been my struggle in in British society just to be accepted as a comic. And I think the then the, what happened was I did that at the um, Prince Charles's seventieth uh, birthday, um, which came out in two thousand and eighteen when it was just me doing seven or eight minutes of stand-up, and I think I mentioned Brexit, I mentioned a few things. And then that was seen as, okay, he's just doing stuff. And there was a couple of things about my Iranian heritage. But then again, you always get people say, oh, he's, there he is banging on about his Iranian heritage. So it, it, it is, it, it's a fine line, and it's something I'm aware of, and it's something that um, I try not to be affected by, because at the end of the day, as a comic, you can only go along with your instincts and do what you think is... Yeah. It's funny. That's all you can do. Do you do you think you gave them ammunition in retrospect with the kind of yeah. everything in the kitchen sink kind of approach? Yeah, I think you know, so. if, if someone didn't want, if someone didn't warm to you and didn't want to take you seriously, they had yes. plenty of ways to attack you. They could, yes, and I think that's the thing. But I make a point in my show that you know this is also my culture. You know, we're not supposed to be doing accents now, apparently, because that's punching down. But I never felt that I was punching down. I felt I I was born and raised in central London. I love the musicality of the way people struggle with the English language. And I like the way people talk. And and, and it's something to mimic in a nice way as a celebratory way. And it's also my culture Like whenever they say, I remember a couple of reviewers, two reviewers called me accent boy. And I'm thinking, oh my God, sorry, this is my, in my culture, we sing, we dance and we do accents. It, It would be like Stuart Lee going to Iran and getting a review says, here comes political satire boy with his perfectly formed routines about the Western socioeconomic nonsense of political society. Two stars, horse and hand, camel and donkey magazine. You know, and I just think that's, there, there's a hypocrisy there. And there was me, I am actually drawing on my culture by doing something different and joyous. And yet somehow that's not acceptable to you. And so I just, there's a, there's a big two fingers up at that. But at the, but the end of the day, you can only do what's authentic to you and you have to, I suppose, bend the rules to your to, to your advantage. So I don't accept that you can't do accents. You can do accents, but it's how you do accents. For sure. That, that sense of yours that you spoke about earlier on, the moment where after a gig where you had only got a warm round of applause, like by no <laughs> yes. means a death, but that wasn't enough for you. I just want to talk about that feeling. I think I remember from your autobiography, a sense which really resonated with me of feeling that you had to be the glue in social situations. Yes. Like with, with, with your family as well, you, had, you were the one that had to make everything all right. And I think yeah. that is a sort of launch pad for a certain... I would say certain comedians, but a certain issue within comedy. There are those of us who have that, that's, if not a gene, but that kind of inflection. I, I have to be the one that makes this not awkward. <laughs> 
Well, what, what do you mean? Do, do you mean there are, is that a, a comedian's um, I think you get lo- challenge? I think you get lots of comics who are who somewhere in their background. I mean, Jimmy Carr again. I've just I've, I've done a lot of work with him recently, interviewing him for his book. He mentioned that he he when he meets another comic, he always says, "Which one of your parents was ill?" Now that neither of my parents was ill, but right. I think he's alluding to the same thing, which is that. It, there is a sense that you need to make everything okay, that you are somehow either not enough or that the situation around you needs glue, maybe with family life or school life. You need to make everything okay. You need to make everyone have fun and be funny and be responsible yes. for that in order that you feel calm and centred. That's, that's, that, uh, there is a lot of truth in that. I do remember thinking that, you know, I remember being very anxious leaving people together and I remember my wife saying, "Don't we'll, we'll be fine without you. You know, you don't need to be here. We're yeah, not going to yeah, have a good right? time without you. You always think no one will have a good time unless I'm there. And yes, that's, that's- yes. What is that? Where does that come from? I feel that. And you, I end up looking like a dickhead because I'm like, okay, I'll just leave you two there. And you just suddenly it kind of betrays this aspect of you that you're like, <laughs> I consider myself the central focus in your lives for some reason. Where yeah. does that come from, do you think? I, I think it comes from... Um, I haven't really thought about this, but I, I do notice that I do do that. And, and I've, I've, I've done it less because I trust people more. And I, I, I see myself less in the centre of the universe. It's, it's a childlike thing, actually, when you're, children think they're the centre of the universe and everything else is like, I remember thinking everyone was a robot and it was all about my growth and everyone was just there. Everything was an illusion, but it was there to help me in my path to God. That's what I thought of this. So I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a childlike thing. But you realise actually that the older you get, the more you realise we are all cut from the same cloth and we, we all have the same anxieties. And you just think, well, let, let them be. But yeah, there is that. It, it, it is an anxiety that people won't have a good time unless you're speaking. And I think that is, that's a childlike thing. And that's not a, that's not a real thing. It's just, it, it is mental illness. I'm sorry to tell you, Stuart, you are mentally ill. <laughs> I only ask this of people who are very successful. Okay. You're very successful. Why aren't you even more successful? Ah, because of the white privilege and racism of England. <laughs> they always ignore me. No, I, 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 why am I not successful? Because I never took it seriously enough. I never took um, showbiz seriously. I, I have other concerns in my life. And I suppose showbiz... When you have a family and when you have kids and things, that showbiz is put into perspective. Stand-up is put into perspective. It doesn't seem that important anymore. Personal development becomes more important because at the end of the day, if if you develop as a person, then your art is better. You're a better actor. You're a better stand-up comedian. So that, that's been, I think, for the last 10 years, something that's been more important to me, only because of being horrified at myself and the way I've inflicted so much noise pollution in Britain. But I think that, um, why am I not more, I I didn't take it seriously enough and I didn't take it, I wasn't as conscious about it. We, you know, we, we moved from lack of, you, you, you start off, you start off in any career in an unconscious way do it. You you get money. Great. Do it. I'll just do that. I'll do it. Just do it. And you think, screw it, just do it because there's, there's a wisdom in it. There's a wisdom in it. But actually, when you stop and have a period of reflection and you ask yourself, why, what am I doing? Then you can be successful if you are more authentic and know why you're doing things. I think I've had that period for the last couple of years now. And, um, and I actually get to the point, I don't even care if I'm successful. I just want to do it 
if people come, they come and they enjoy it. By no means the show is selling out. I do so many tweets about there's still a thousand. There's still about twenty five thousand tickets left. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not. I've looked at the, there's one of the uh, like the websites you can see the ticket sales. There's a healthy amount of limited availability. Health, yes, there, yes. You know. it, 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 it's it's selling well, but as as to you know being a household name and people saying wow he's a great stand up that hasn't happened only because I don't take social media that seriously. I don't put enough YouTube clips of myself out there. Uh, only because I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud of the stuff from the past. So yes, I have to be proud of it now. I have to be proud of it. And I stop things going up. People film things. I try and block it. I, people try and put stuff out from my old DVDs and I try and take it down. I say, no, it's not good enough. That's not funny. Anyway, you've put a clip up and you haven't even put the punchline up there. Take it down. So I try and... um I try and regulate a little bit the stuff that goes out because I'm not proud of it. Good I'm still you. not proud I of mean, it. That's hard. That is a bind, isn't it? Because you could be selling more tickets. You've got a wealth of televised stuff yes. in the back catalogue that you could be using. And good for you for deciding that it's. I not don't think to it's good standard. enough. I don't think it's good enough. And um, I, you know, I was speaking to a couple of other comics about this, and and the, the kind of shame of your past stand up. The shame. I mean, even I saw some old Bill Bailey clips, which are very Maybe funny. Who you're talking to. Sorry, I'm joking. Yes. I mean, I've seen some Bill Bailey clips, which are really, really funny. And then his wife told me, "Goes, oh God, don't mention that." Even Bill's really ashamed of that. I said, "Why? It's hilarious." So stuff that we think is hilarious, the you know performers don't think is it's particularly good. So I think it's all a process. I think we have to forgive ourselves if things are out there which we don't like. I, I just accept it, but. But I, I think that social media plays a very big part of it. If you look at someone like Dane Cook, Dane Cook built a whole he built a whole comedian a comedy career yeah. on MySpace and then yeah. Facebook and and I never I came into it very very late. David Badil badgered me to get on get onto Twitter in two thousand nine. I didn't even tweet until two thousand eleven really. But but I think that if I took that a bit more seriously, maybe. But. But you know, I'm I'm happy with th- the way things are going. I've got I've got a great opportunity to do something global now. I've got I'm doing a show in the Persian language for BBC Persia, which I'll do an English version of as well. Okay. Just a short half hour talk show, which hopefully will be the most watched show on the planet if 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 we do it if we do it properly. So that's something that will I can get my teeth into. But mm. you know, at the end of the day, I don't crave that needy success in the way mm. I used to. I don't crave ticket sales. I don't crave, you know, I even did a joke. I, I said, someone gave me 11 stars for the last show I did. And I said, I really hope that you're a, a reviewer from The Guardian because I crave broadsheet approval, yeah. English broadsheet approval. I said, it's a joke because I don't, I don't care. I don't care what Dominic Maxwell says. I don't care what anyone says. Although I do, if I get a two-star review, I'll, I'll crumble. <laughs> I will crumble immediately. I will crumble and beg them, please, just scrap that and come and see the next show. So, but, but there is a point where you think, I am who I am. And if they like it, they like it. If, and, they, you know, and, 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 you know, you do read comments and people say, yeah, this is the worst. But I was listening to my, my son. I think my son said the same, the, a great thing. He goes, you, he goes, you are, to me, the funniest comedian in the world, but somehow you still suck. And I love that because... There's always room for improvement. Every night I try and improve the show. Every night I work on things. Even a word. There was a word I was. I missed a word in a routine. I thought, why don't they didn't laugh? I didn't laugh. I thought, oh my God, there's a word I'm missing. There's a word I'm missing. One word. Even words. You just think they know it. No, you just have to punch things up a little bit. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's the thing. That's all you can do is don't be worried about success. Don't be worried about how you're perceived. Just, just do better. And, you, and if you have an ch- opportunity like I have every night 
before me. I did a show last night. I've got a show tonight. I have a chance to improve from, from last night. What is the best, what is the, the thing that you are most proud of, the material or the part of the show that you're going to do tonight that you're the most proud of or the most looking forward to? That's most emblematic of the new. Yes, it, there, there, are, there are moments in the show where I think, okay, you're enjoying this routine. And I think it's the last routine I do. Because uh, I, I bring back one of my oldest routines that got me cancelled. Actually, I did this at Are the you end. You referred to that earlier on. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, this is a reason to see the show because I finished the show on it. It's it's a routine I did at the Edinburgh Festival at the Assembly Rooms press launch. In those days when they had a press launch in the 90s, 300 people would come. The whole press and all the industry would come and lots of performers would come because they'd be getting invites and they get free drinks and snacks. So it'd be in the afternoon like two in the afternoon and they pick nine acts. There were eight or nine acts and we were all doing three minutes. And I didn't realize I was a diversity. I was a pretty new comic as well. And everyone got massive laughs and thought, oh, this is a fun thing. So I went on sixth and I did my three minutes and not only did it get no laughs, but there was like, there was people were offended by it somehow. And then when I say canceled, I mean, I was looking for an agent and I remember ringing people after because, no, sorry, we saw you at the press launch. Not interested. I said, really? He goes, not interested in that. And frankly, you should be ashamed of yourself. I'm like, oh, my God. What did I say? What did I do? And um, I, I really reflected on it, actually. And, and um, what I finish is it's a challenge to the audience. I'll do it again and and see if the audience laughs. So it's, 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 it's my way of doing something important. Will they laugh at a routine now? Whereas, whereas everything's been in reverse. People look back at their old routines and think, I can't do that now because I'll get cancelled. I got cancelled for a routine 26 years ago and I bring it back and I challenge the audience because if you don't laugh, I think you're racist. Because I think the reason why they didn't laugh is because I was always doing jokes about denigrating my culture to, you know, kind of cosy up to white middle class mm. um, society. But this one where brown people were the heroes of the story. And in 1995 the British society didn't couldn't quite understand that these people were the heroes of the story because they were where white people were the butt of the jokes. We can do that now, but 26 years ago, we couldn't do that. And 26 years ago, people were offended by it. And 26 years ago, people actually said, you should be ashamed of yourself. So that's what I do. And I think that's what I'm most, that's what I'm most proud of because I've, I've, I've slightly adjusted it, but I think the way it works is, almost like a perfect bit of stand up because there's a there's a there's a there's a good setup for it and I take my time I'm yep. not so needy for laughs I can talk for a minute without laughs to set it up mm-hmm. and then in between there are some great jokes and great moments and it's very authentic because it's something that happened to me it's something that happened to me in 1975 when I was 10 years old so it's it that's the bit I'm most proud of so it's a rehashing of a routine I haven't done for years which got me cancelled but now is the funniest part of the show amazing I hope that sells it to you. <laughs> it does, it does, it really does. Thank you so much, Omid. What's your favourite opening line of another comic? That's a very good question. My favourite uh, opening line has to be Larry David, which you'll see on the pilot episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm when he's trying out stand-up. When he just says, you know, my, my favourite thing about Hitler is he never took any shit from magicians. <laughs> That's a cracker. That's very good. If you had one quality which got you where you are today, besides your comic ability, what would it be? Perseverance and just keep going. That's the thing. Even when I'm knocked down, get up and carry on. Knocked down, get up and carry on. Just the sheer bloody-minded 
perseverance. When I first met Michael McIntyre in 2000, he said to me, he goes, hi, my name is Michael. I'm a young comedian. I've done eight gigs and I've stormed them all. Do you have any, uh, he goes, a big fan of yours. Do you have any advice? And I said, that's the advice I would give. Self-belief, because 90% of this is self-belief. If, if no one else believes in you, if you believe in yourself, then you'll go far. And he just said, no, I've got plenty of self-belief. Have you got any other, have you got any other advice? <laughs> So self-belief and perseverance. That's magnificent. Um, what great idea did you have that you tried once and then it was awful and you never tried it again? It was about um, praying for jokes. There was a routine which which happened to me and I thought it, I thought it would work in stand-up. I tried it once and it never worked. Um, it, was, um, it was praying for a joke about praying for jokes. That's what it was, and in what oh, it, it I and I couldn't find, I couldn't find a, a punchline for it, and I said prayers for it because someone said, you know, the comedians who've passed on, they can sometimes inspire comedians now. So I, I was praying. I said, I've got, I've got, I've, I've got a, a routine about praying for jokes, but I haven't got a punchline. So, so in my dream, someone came up to me and goes, I've got a great punchline. Try this. So I thought that's very funny. I wrote it down, went to the comedy store, started the routine about praying for dreams. And I did the end and it got nothing. And I thought, oh, that was disappointing. And then I went to bed that night. And I, 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 I'm not kidding, Stuart. I dreamed again. <laughs> the same bloke came back and just said, I'm really sorry. I said, what? He goes, that was shit. I said, who are you? He goes, I said, are you a comedian? He went, no. I said, why did you give me that joke? He goes, well... I, I'm an accountant and I stormed the Christmas party and I, I thought you needed to help. I, I said, I said, do you know what? If you, if I'm going to pray, can, can, I, can you send me proper comedians, not some bloke who's an accountant who stormed the Christmas party and it didn't work. So I, I wish there was a routine around that, but it ne- I did it. I told the whole story and it never got a laugh. So I just dropped it. And it was, just, it was a routine about praying yeah. for punchlines. That is, I love how high concept that is. That's incredible. <laughs> Last thing, how do you cope with failure? Well, look at me. I, I comfort eat. That's one thing. I've got to stop doing it. I've got to stop comfort eating. And, and I've been trying to work on that. Um, but the way I cope with failure is, is, it's a mental thing where I've trained myself that nothing is perfect in this life. We all make mistakes and try and forgive myself. Try and forgive myself mistakes because you know, it's, it's important to acknowledge that you've made a mistake and it's important to adjust the mistake. But it's also important to, I suppose, welcome the mistake because we never, even now, my God, in my mid-50s, I made horrible mistakes on stage last night. But I, I literally have my team watch it. I mean, even my even my technician said, you forgot to do this in the setup. That's why that gag didn't last. Oh, God, you're right. Thank you. So surround yourself with people who are not yes men. I think that's a very important thing. And they just tell you, you forgot this because you're going to make mistakes, but you need people to tell you. And I'm very, very proud of my family as well, who tell me, yeah, people were standing, but we're offended by that show. We didn't like that show. And you think, oh, come on, really? And they explain why. And you have to be open. And think, okay, yeah, maybe you're right. Okay. And be open to the fact that you've made mistakes, even when you think you haven't. And I think that's, that's a very important thing. And that's, yeah. how, I deal with, that's how I deal with failure. Are you happy? Very happy. That's great. Don't I look happy? I'm very happy <laughs> because I know I'm flawed. I know I'm terrible. I know, I know I suck and I suck big time. But you know, 
None of us are the finished article and we're all, we're all in learning mode. That's very important. I'm always in learning mode. And I think if you stay in learning mode, you stay happy. So that was Omid Jalili. Tremendous fun. And you know what I mean? I'm, I'm also glad that I waited. I'm putting words in your mouth that you're glad I waited because that was a real look back on the thing, chew through it, get stuck into it. Really, really fascinating stuff and admirably candid. So thank you once again, Omid. Um, on the subject of uh, any other business, the AOB at the end, um, you will notice that the, the sound quality wasn't marvellous there. We had a bit of a technical uh, issue recording and Omid's recording got lost. Um, so you will notice that I sound better than he does. He sounds like he's at the end of a tunnel, but Nathan has done sterling work on uh, on making it sound almost as good as you would come to expect. Thank you, everyone. Oh, I'll do all the thank yous, which, of course, the music is Rob Smouton. Nathan Wood is the producer. Um, Pete Dobbing is sort of loose consultant or has some sort of role. Pete Dobbing plays a role of some sort. And uh, the logging was by Jake Crossland. But also thank you to everyone who has uh, been in touch regarding their suggestions for episode 400. It's coming up very soon. I've said, I've suggested a couple of things, either someone megabucks famous or someone smaller who I'm super excited about, who is like, maybe I'd get them on a bit earlier than otherwise. Um, or maybe Rob Deering, as he was number one. But if we do, do, and I'd love to do Rob, I think I've already offered it to Rob a couple of months ago. But if we do do Rob, what are we going to do for episode 500, right? Surely you should save up episode one to revisit it 500. But that's two years away. Anything could happen. So who knows? Maybe it'll be Rob. But keep those coming in. Info at ComediansComedian.com or indeed the all new Stuart at ComediansComedian.com. You can tweet me at ComCom pod you can also retweet whatever the pin tweet is every uh, episode every time an episode goes out i pin a tweet to the top of at comcom pod on twitter and if you would kindly retweet that that would be much appreciated helps get the word out about the show thank you for your reviews your apple podcast reviews and google reviews and any other apps it's always useful to get i always think you if you if you review a show on an app like Castbox or downcast or something like that it seems to carry so much more weight because uh, so so few people do it so i hope you like it i hope you've stayed with this long enough and get stuck in there and also you could do me a favor as the future looks increasingly not the future but just the next month i mean the future is always uncertain and it's often increasingly uncertain but um just with regard to this christmas if there are we've got a couple of gaps left for places that we could do a virtual office party uh the trailer is currently the pin tweet at comcom pod so check that out and retweet it if you wish um and if you fancy getting me along to talk to your business or your people your your organization's employees staff or friends uh, about resilience and what you can learn about that from a comedy perspective it's a lovely way to kickstart january i've had a couple of those come in and i've thought oh yeah I should have been pushing for that in October, but I'll push for it now. That's all of that. Um, I, I won't. I said I was going to post Amble. All it is, I'll do a little tiny chat here. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. And now this is the post Amble. So. Um, I had a bunch of gigs. I was very lucky. Got an old school London triple up on uh, on Friday night. And then on Saturday night, I had had fun gigs. And I think what I'd suffered from is I recorded a load of stuff recently and then had, and more news on that as and when. But I then kind of, because I'd recorded the stuff, I thought to myself, well, that's all of that stuff burnt. And I swaggered around going, yeah, that's what it feels like to burn all your stuff. Not done that for a while. Um, but of course, I didn't suddenly write another 20 minutes of uh, killer club stuff so i found myself at these clubs at the weekend kind of in a in a weirdly panicky nervy state of mind that i i should be beyond now where i was sort of going 
oh, right, I, I can't do that stuff because that's old. But, but these new bits, they're too new to do. And I had a really interesting conversation with a friend of the show and of mine, James Acaster, who you might know from his incredible appearance on Joe Lysett's uh, tour posters for Wembley Arena. Excellent work uh, by all involved. Um, but uh, James made a really good point to me about being prepared to, like, needing to be scared. I've got this idea for a show for next year, and we were talking about it, and I sort of said, I don't know, I don't know if I'm capable of it, and he made an excellent point. That's what you should be doing then, isn't it? It's the sort of thing I'd have said to someone else, and I wish I had a floating me to give my advice to people, because I'm buggered if I can think of it myself. But the point he was making is that you should be going into it feeling scared. Why would you go into making a next show territory thinking, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll knock this off. <laughs> you know, I know what this is. I don't mean to be too sort of simplistic about that. It's obviously one of the one of the factors, let's not call it a challenge, one of the factors of comedy is that it always feels heroic. And it's so easy to forget that or not to realise it from the outside. And maybe that is why some comics can arguably stagnate is because there is... Like, it's always heroic, even doing the same, even writing new stuff that's only as good as last year's, last year's stuff. That is still heroic and difficult. Is heroic the right word? It, it's certainly not noble, but it is still difficult and you do... It is heroic because you have to put yourself out there over and over again to make the stuff... To, to get good and stay good, to stay at only that level is hard enough. So well done if you've achieved that. But... I think I've always had a, a a tendency, probably, if I'm to self-analyse, to... Uh, well, there's that, yes, I've always had a tendency to self-analyse, but also not to dream big enough, you know, because there's some sort of self-esteem thing that kind of got in there as a little wrinkle when I was a kid. And I think, whoa, I could have anything, but I, th I think I'll have a little safe amount of it. Something wild and exciting, but then but then a little safe, a safe version of that, you know. And I think that it is because it is heroic enough just to get good and stay there, it is hard to remember that part of the job is to be doubly heroic and try to get out of the same stuff and try to continue taking risks. So thank you to James for reminding me of that, because it would it would already be a big, scary thing to come up with another hour of stand up. I can't imagine ever getting into the position where I think, yeah, I'll just I'll just knock off another hour. I'll just, I'll just I'll just rip out another hour. That'll be fine. I mean, maybe I talk about it sort of comically like that, and I go, oh, yeah, well, that'll be next next year's hour. But as soon as I sit down and think of it in detail, I'm like, oh my god, can there be an eleventh hour? <laughs> I should call it the eleventh hour. Oh, I mean, that's that's quite funny, but it's not good enough to be a title. Um, but you you sit down, you look at it, and you go, oh my god, that's hard enough. But we must continue to push ourselves and punch through the back of the head and look beyond that and go, not just not just the same again, which is itself scary and difficult and heroic, but also push further than that and risk. So there we go. I've got a meeting in, oh gosh, 12 minutes now, about tentative plans for next year. So now I'm going to have to go into that meeting with, a real, with the vim that I've just tried to inspire in you. Good luck, everybody. Have good meetings. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business. 
removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.